Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Reaching Out Radio International. We are a ministry team working together in love and unity, in one in mind and one accord, sharing the gospel into the world. Tonight, we are going to be sharing a previous recorded message by Pastor Brian Fouts, recorded in August 2023, titled, You Will Always Need One More in Life. We know it will bless you and give you more understanding. So with no further ado, we welcome on Pastor Brian Fouts. God bless you all. We thank you for listening. And raise your right hand as we receive Pastor Brian Fouts on this morning. Amen? Amen. 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 Come on up. Come on up, brother. Y'all give me a hand as you come. So this headset's kind of new for me. Usually they make me hand a mic, and Lane asked me if I wanted a mic, and I said, not unless you want a bunch of mic drops. (laughs) My left hand just doesn't do well, neither does my right hand. Uh, Good morning. It is really a pleasure for me to to be here this morning, and uh, uh, Pastor Joel had asked me to come in and maybe share part of my testimony and of course like I've always done in the past when I've gotten ready to do a sermon I kind of toss and turn for weeks about what am I going to talk about and the Lord will finally tell me and then he's got a great sense of humor you know you start typing stuff up and then about a week later it goes by and God goes no no I don't don't want you to do that one I want you to do this one instead. And so then you start to work on that, and he comes back and said, no, no, I think I want you to go back and do the other one. And so you find yourself kind of tossing and turning back and forth until you finally get stuff down. And then this last week it was like, well, I thought about playing some music. And uh, I had some really great songs kind of picked out for you guys to do worship. I thought about having uh, one or two of my keyboard songs played. And uh, yesterday while I was kind of napping, uh, I was going back and forth with the Lord, and I said, I think I'll have Lane do this one, and I think maybe I'll have him do that one. No, I think I'll have him do that one. And then there was like this old voice tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, Brian, it's not about you tomorrow. Don't worry about the music. Don't worry about your music. Just get up and do what I've called you to do. So before I always like to jump right in, I always like to pray because I tell people, I need the prayer as much as for myself. So, Father, I just come before you this morning. I pray for your strength. Father, I pray that people will see your eyes and my eyes, that they'll hear your voice and my voice, and that, Father, it will be your words and not my words. Uh, Father, be with me as the, as the pastor prayed over me to settle my heart, settle everything in my head, and clear out the clutter, as they like to say. And, Father, this morning I pray that... Um, There will be changed hearts and changed lives this morning by some of the words that you hear, uh, some of the preaching, and then some of the testimony. And one of the things that I always like to share with people, Father, is is that we all have a testimony. And, Father, what we need to remember is that there are things that have happened in our lives that we need to be prepared in and out of season to share with someone else because our story may just be the thing that they need that may make a difference in their hearts and in their lives. And so, Father, this morning I pray blessings over this church. I pray blessings over the pastor. And, Father, that I pray that you continue to work your miracles, Father, because, Father, that you are the miracle and the way maker. Father, be with us this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and amen. I never used to say three amens until I came here. So, my, my topic today is you'll always need one more. And so there's a story that goes like this. There was a farmer that lived in the local area. He passed away and he left three sons. You know, as all fathers do, they have three proud sons. And so unusually different, he left everything equally divided amongst his three sons. I can tell you that being after 27 years in the insurance business, that never works out. It doesn't matter how they do it. As I told somebody one time, I said, somebody's not going to like the deal. And so in this particular case, the father equally 
shared the property, the home, and everything else except one thing. He had 17 mules that he was pretty proud of. And so in his will, he said to the first son, he said he gets half. To the second son, he gets a third. And to the third son, he gets a ninth. Now, some of you can't see the board over there that's 17. One of them gets half, the other one gets a third, and the other one gets a ninth. Now, as you can tell, boys being boys, they probably started fighting amongst themselves. Probably it went out into the front yard and fists were singing. And after a while, they started taking their story into town. After a while, all of the townspeople got really tired of their bickering. Yes, have you heard about the farm boys? Yeah, yeah, I've already heard about the 17 mules. I've heard about the division. So finally, one day, an uncle who lived nearby, he got tired of it. So he got on his mule, and he rode over to the farm where the boys were. And he said, boys, boys, come here. Stop your fighting. He said, I think I got something that will work out. And he says, now humor me. And so with that, he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to add my mule into the mix of your 17. You now have 18 mules. And he said, so to the oldest brother, he gets half. That's nine. The middle brother, he gets a third. That's six. The youngest brother gets a, he gets a ninth, and that's two. Nine and six is 15, and two is 17. Solving the problem, the uncle got back on his mule, and he rode home. <laughs> So, as you can tell in life, you're always going to need one more. You will always need one more. And so, one of the things I always like to ask is, you know, so what do you think it means when it says one more? After taking four seminary classes, I, I learned to do a lot of Hebrew and a lot of studying in that area. And so, in the dictionary it says one more means, and I thought this was kind of ongoing and too descriptive, it said, said, constituting a unified entity of two or more components, the number denoting unity. I thought whoever wrote that out could have said something a lot simpler for us country folk. In Hebrew, that word is the word echad, and it actually means, are you ready for this? It means one, only one, and once and for all. It means another one, it means the other, and it just means one after the other, or I thought this was kind of unique, one by one. The Hebrew has a really great sense of humor in their language. And so in life, we will always find that we will need one more. We're going to need one more person, we're going to need one more thing, we're going to need one more component just to make things come together and to work. And you know, with two, this is kind of interesting. There is a completion that takes place. There's a protection, and there's a beginning, and there's an end. The Bible has several instances and examples of when one more is needed. Uh, unlike some pastors that I've known in the past, they like to kind of list them all and share them all with everybody. I didn't think I'd like to do that this morning, so I only picked two. So in Exodus chapter 17, in verses 8 through 13, it reads like this. And this is from the Amplified. I kind of like the Amplified Bible. Then came Amalek, who were descendants of Esau, and they fought with Israel at a place called the Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us out, men, and go out to fight with Amalek. And tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with my rod of God in my hand to assist you. So when Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. They were out winning in the battlefield. And Moses and Aaron joined him. But suddenly when Moses' hands got tired, Aaron and her rushed up to the top and they kind of pulled up a rock up underneath of him. He sat down and he could still hold up his hands and Israel would prevail. Suddenly his hands started getting kind of tired. I'm paraphrasing the scripture verse there. And so finally what happened was as Moses has got his hands up there, he kind of starts leaning this way and he kind of starts leaning this way. And then Aaron and Hur come by and they pick up both ends of the rod and they hold it up into the air. And when they do, Joshua prevails 
and he went all day until he mowed down all of the Amalek people and took them down by the sword. So as you can see, Moses needed help, and the Lord sent Aaron with him along with one more, a man named Hur. So oftentimes in our trials and our hardships, we find ourselves lacking the strength to do something by ourselves. We think that we can do it ourselves, or as they say up in New York, I can do this. I can do this thing. I can get it done. I'm strong enough. But when we reach to this point, we suddenly become battle fatigued, become very tired, become weak and weary, and then doubt and fear begins to come into our body. And then guess what? We need help. So in the book of Mark in chapter 6, we find another example of this same need of needing one more. And in Mark 6, verses 7 through 11, and this one comes from the NIV, it says that then Jesus went around teaching from the village to village. He then called out the 12 disciples to him, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the impure spirits. And then he gave them the following instructions. Take nothing for the journey with you except a staff. No bread, no bags, no money bag in your belt wallet. You're to wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Everywhere I go, I always take an extra shirt. But he told them no extra shirt. And he said that whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and then shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. It's like reaching out for people that were supposed to help you and they won't. And God just says when that happens, you walk outside and you kick the dust off your feet and you go on down the road. So notice here again that they did not just send one person but they sent more than what was needed to bring the task of completion and to take the vision or the project at hand. They needed one more. You know, some of us can remember that when we were a child and the weather was cold or windy, possibly, possibly depending upon where you grew up, maybe it was raining or maybe it was snowing. We lived in California and our parents always told us that they had to walk both ways in the snow. And uh, then as we're heading out the door, we hear this voice from across the room. It says, don't forget your coat and your hat. And so we needed one more to make that completion. You see, we cannot head out into life with just one idea or a goal or one thing. We have to remember that we need one more, and we need one more thing to make a completion and to make everything go right. Miles Monroe once said that he didn't care if you were 8, 18, 38, 48, 58, or 88, that God still has a plan for you. He still has a purpose for you. And in that purpose that he's got for you, guess what? You're still going to need one more thing when you get out into life to do that. I told you I'd be looking at the clock. So Pastor Joel had asked me to kind of give my personal testimony. You know, you go in and you start writing stuff down and you say, yeah, I'm going to include this, 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 and this. And then a friend comes by and the friend says, no, I wouldn't use that. No, they don't need to hear about your drinking. No, I wouldn't talk about that. No, I wouldn't talk about that either. No, you need to shorten that down. And I said, well, what about, no, no, you don't need to do that either. And so as a friend of mine once said, like when you're writing a paper, when you get through, look at it and then divide it and cut it in half. And then you shorten it down to where everybody can understand what's going on. So Pastor Joel, and for those who really don't know me, well, I was born in San Francisco, California. We lived south of there in a redwood forest district in a town called Brookdale, California. It's still there. And when, whenever we went out and people would say, boy, where are you from? Our parents told us to just tell them that we were from California, from the land of fruits and nuts. 
So, Pastor Joel, I guess my testimony actually started when my mother dropped me on my head as a child. I had an older brother, two older sisters, and Brian, you guessed it, was the youngest child. And to my siblings, I was not their younger brother, I was the brat. I was always getting in trouble or I was being blamed for something that they did and for the things that I did not do. But that's the risk that you take at being the youngest child. My grandparents were actually professors of music in Oklahoma. They had three girls and one son and they all learned to play. My mother played the cello, the two aunts played the violin and played the piano and sang and my oldest uncle played the viola. Of course, in music terms, we used to say what burns longer, a string bass or a viola, and we always said the string bass. And they go, well, why is that? And I said, well, because nobody ever takes the viola out of the case. <laughs> so anyway, just kind of an interesting sideline here is that my grandparents and their three children actually traveled through the Midwest during the mid-20s and early 30s, and they were actually known as the Von Trapp family of the Midwest. So for those of you who have never seen The Sound of Music, that was all about the Von Trapp family. And so that's kind of how our parents were. And just as a side note, my grandfather, when he was at the University of Oklahoma, when it came to be halftime, he would get out a covered, he would get out a wagon, they would take the covered part off, they'd fill it up with musicians, and at halftime, they would go around and play music around the break. That later led to the halftime shows. So I don't know if he was the instigator of halftime shows that we now can watch, but that's where that got started at the University of Oklahoma. For me, my music career started at five. My mother started me on piano at five, organ at six, then the accordion at seven, and then violin at nine. At nine, after about eight lessons, I told my mother, I'm through with the violin. I'm not going to play that anymore. And when I grew up later, somebody used to say, what's the definition of a gentleman? And they used to say, a gentleman is a man who can play the accordion, but won't. <laughs> later, my parents finally moved us from Stockton, California in 1963, and moved us all the way across the country to Southeast Florida, to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The place of, sun, of sand, fun, palm trees, and the ocean. I hated it. I wanted to go back to the rivers and to the mountains. And so when people would say, where do you live? Gosh, I bet you it must have been great living in Fort Lauderdale. And I would always tell them, it's a nice place to visit. So I continued my music. Uh, and by the time I was in junior high school, I started playing the tenor sax, which I carried on into my senior year. I did three summers at the University of Miami at their music camp. Back then it was six weeks, not like two weeks like they have today. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. I graduated, I started at Broward Community College in music education and drinking. Uh, after about a year of that, I got student loans and I took off north of Georgia and decided to go to a new college. So I went to Tennessee Tech University up there in Cookville, Tennessee, because that's the way they talk up there. After a year up there, I ran out of my federal money, so I wrecked my car. I came home. I was carless. Spent about eight months doing about nine different types of jobs. Jobs I hated, jobs I don't think I would ever go back and do again. And then finally I decided, you know, this is not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. The drinking's getting worse. I need to get out of here. My mom had remarried, and so I called her and I said, I need to grow up. I need to get out of here. So my mom paid for a one-way flight on National Airlines out of Miami Airport, and I flew into Houston and went to work for my stepfather doing heavy construction work. After that, when people said, are you from Texas? And I said, no, but I got here as fast as I could. Yeah. <laughs> After doing heavy construction work for a while, I decided to leave that alone. I wasn't really made for that, so I went and I started delivering auto supply parts. I was a, I was a delivery driver. And then in time, I started to work my way up to where I was 
working on the counter, what they used to call a, a counterman. As time went on, I went through a couple of different stores and started growing and getting better and better, but I still was not happy with my life. So in February of 81, a good friend of mine, he'd been backsliding, so he said, Brian, he said, uh, you've had a lot of failed relationships. He said, you need to come to this conference. So they took me to this relationship conference and it was put on by Ron Ralston. He actually had a, a box of like post toasties on the front and had his picture on the front. And it was Ray Ralston. And so he led this seminar and during the seminar all that I heard was that if you wanted to come to Jesus Christ, you have to stop drinking, you have to stop smoking, and you have to stop having sex. I went up to him later and I said, Ron, I said, I quit drinking one time because I was a gutter-bound alcoholic. I said, I stopped for two years, I can stop again. I said, cigarettes, I can stop, but I can't give up the last one. I said, it's just no way. And what I didn't realize later was that that's not really what he said. What he said was is that Jesus is waiting and you can come now and he can take care of the rest. Amen. So... I met a gal, Patsy, who went to First Baptist Houston, and then I started attending a place called Eight's the Place on Friday nights. Singles got together over at the green room of First Baptist Houston, and then on Monday, they played singles volleyball over at Northwest Academy. And that was fun. You're meeting new people. You're meeting different people that are in the parts business. You're meeting people who don't use foul language and aren't talking about their latest escapade that they just had. And so it was really nice. And so one Friday night, a guy by the name of Lee Jolly, and he was going by the name of Lee Darling, he used to be a, a rock host on the radio, he said, well, we can't meet next week because uh, they're going to be holding a revival over at Del Mar Stadium. And I said, well, I guess I won't be doing anything next week. And he said, but Sandy Patty and the Imperials are going to be there. And I'd been listening to KSBJ, and I said, oh, man, I really love Sandy Patty and the Imperials, man. They rock. So on July the 15th, 1981, I went to Del Mar Stadium, sat up there, and I listened to Sandy Patty sing, knocked the socks off, and I heard the Imperials play, and I was just like in seventh heaven. And when they got through, John Bazan, you walked out on the stage, and he said, let's give them all a really great big hand, man. Weren't they great? Sandy was awesome. The Imperials were awesome. And he said, now, folks, don't go away. I got this really short little message, and then they'll be back to play for you. So I'm sitting up there, and I'm thinking, yeah, I can listen to a short message. Yeah, I can wait till the band comes back. And so that's why I stayed. As Brother John began his message, as he started talking, I suddenly felt like he was reading everything in my life, everything that I did wrong. And it's like I sat there going, is this guy reading my mail? Has he been listening to my telephone calls? Has he been in my bedroom? And suddenly when he got through, he finally said, he said that if you want to have your life changed, and he said the only way that you can have that changed is to come down here, ask the Lord for forgiveness. He'll redeem you of your sins and he'll make you a new person. I found myself going down the aisle, going down to the bottom, and on that night I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I had told the Lord that I was wanting to get married. I hope I would find me a nice five foot seven single blonde girl with long blonde hair down to her waist. The man that witnessed to me then introduced me to his daughter. Ah, my wishes have been answered. This is the woman that I was thinking of. We dated for a while. She went back to school, and then it happened. I was then introduced to this five foot ten brunette with auburn highlights. Her name was Leah Beth McLennan. I saw her playing volleyball, and I told somebody, I said, man, just my height. And then he said, well, do you want to meet her? And I said, nah, it'll never work. In November, I asked her to marry me. The following February of 82, on the 6th, Lee and I were married. She passed away last year. We almost made 40 years. Yesterday was a year and a half. 
But my prayer still goes on every day, and I, I miss my wife, but I still ask the Lord to bring me a life mate because I don't like to be alone. So moving along, here we are. We're brand-new newlyweds, and as new, new Christian newlyweds do, you start planning out your future. Hey, what do you want? I want to do this, and no, and I want to do this, and I want to do that, and let's do this, let's do the other. And then you go, yeah, we, all right, we've agreed. We want, to, we want to get this much money put away. And then we want to start looking for a house, and you want to get a, an auto supply store, and then I want to have a baby. And so all of these things start working together, and then on March the 14th, 1986, born unto us was this beautiful little baby girl, Victoria Carol Fouts. She would be our only daughter. By the end of 87 and 88, things weren't working out for me. I changed careers, went into the insurance business, found out that I failed miserably. We ended up losing our house, losing our money, and filing for bankruptcy. Some people out there, that they look at bankruptcy and they go, oh my gosh, you know, we're in debt, we owe $15,000. We owed 128000 and I learned quickly that it was just money. And I learned from a, the attorney. He gave me the story about Abe Lincoln and how Abe Lincoln starved and missed things all the way. And he kept having backlashes and things that happened against him until finally one day he ended up becoming president of the United States. God is in the business of redemption and restoration. And so during this time, we kind of fast forward a little bit. In 95 and 96, I ended up having not one but two car wrecks. Messed up my back, messed up my sciatic nerve, and messed up my mental and cognitive things. It would be five years later that we would find out how severe that they were so that when the neurologist gave me the paper to read, as I started reading it, she held my hand and cried. My wife cried. And then she looked at me and she said, Brian, you have to understand that the old Brian is dead. He's not coming back. You'll have to change. So as things started changing along those lines, our daughter, by the time that she was five, she accepted Christ at five. At eight, she's running around like a little evangelist. She's coming up to people and she's saying, do you have Jesus in your heart? Do you have Jesus in your heart? Hey, do you have Jesus in your heart? Do you have Jesus in your heart? And every new person that she met, she said the same thing, and she was fearless. It didn't matter if they were 5, 10, or 50 years old. She'd go up and say the same thing. She'd say the same thing to adults and to have them shocked. Hi, do you know do you have Jesus in your heart? And they would just kind of like raise their eyebrows and kind of look at you like, are you sending your kid out to proselytize for Christ or something? And they'd just go... You're on your own. She kept doing that, and it just astounded us. And then the first suddenly came in our life. Our daughter turns 14. For you out there who have daughters, right around that time, hormones change. And when the hormones change, suddenly there's drama. There's drama here, there's drama there. There's drama over here, there's drama over there, and here you are trying to run a, an insurance business and you're thinking, oh my God, it's bad enough with my insurance clients and I have to come home to this. Then at 16, we thought maybe things would change at 16, and at 16, she started being indoctrinated by the world. And then suddenly, as I like to tell people, that the dark side began to set in. Or as I like to say, that suddenly your, your daughter is the granddaughter of Darth Vader. <laughs> we did everything. We prayed. We did counseling. We did psychiatric counseling. We, she was put into a home for like a week or so. Uh, you know, that's just like chaining up a pit bull to a fence and waiting until they get loose and, and just go crazy. So anyway, she's home, and finally one weekend, Lee and I decided we need a break, and so we left her on her honor to stay there and not to have anybody over. So we went out of town for two days. Had a lovely weekend, just the two of us, no drama, no nothing. We come back, and we have a note to call the constables. The constables have a really nice, long report for us. 
not only are we getting the report from the constables, but we're getting the reports from all of the neighbors. Brian and Leah Fouts were gone. Victoria invited one person over. The next thing you knew, they were all making phone calls. And the Fouts house became the party, the block party of the neighborhood. Not a, did everybody in Memorial Parkway know about it, but everybody at Kingsland Baptist heard about the party. They knew about it before, the, before we even had a chance to get back into town and go to Sunday school. After a while, the constables had enough, and so they finally removed her. She ended up living with friends, finally ran out of all of her friends, found herself living on the street, and then finally, one night, as we heard that she finally fell down to the ground, crying out to God and said, I need help. I can't do this anymore. She needed one more. And God came back into her life. He gave forgiveness to her and gave her redemption. When she came back to her house, we had a totally different daughter that walked in, totally respectful, had great manners. And the neatest thing about it all, she had a glow. She had a glow about her like I've never seen before. She stayed home, and then in March of 2004 was time for her birthday. She used to tell us for a year, she said, Mom, Dad, when I grow up and I get to be 18, I'm going to go out and the roof's going to come off and I'm going to really enjoy life. I'm going to enjoy life like I've never enjoyed it before. It's going to be so awesome. So her 18th birthday came and some friends got together that we knew and they kind of basically took her out on the town and she had a blast. She called me on Wednesday, March the 17th and said, Dad, it's going to be too late before I get home and I know you don't like for me to come in after midnight, so my friends are going to take me over to another friend's house and I'm going to spend the night and I'll be home Thursday morning. For about a week off and on while I was working in my office, I'd be working, and all of a sudden, I felt like an elephant sat on my chest. I couldn't hardly breathe. And the more and more that I started praying about it, I knew that this was some kind of a spiritual battle that was taking place. It was some kind of spiritual oppression. Like, what in the world? Why do I feel like i got this elephant on my chest? Finally, that feeling kind of went away, and that Thursday morning, I hear a car pull up into the drive, and I hear two car doors shut. Our dog Trooper, our golden retriever, he goes to the front door and is, for those of you who have a golden retriever, their, their response is, hey, who's here? Are they here for me? And so I look out and I see two men and they've got these like work vests on. And as they turn to come to the house, suddenly it says, Sheriff, across the front. And my first thought is, oh great Vic, what have you done? You know, i got two officers out here from the sheriff's office, what have you done? So I open up the door and I go out and I said, morning officers, can I help you? <laughs> and they said, yes, we're looking for relatives of uh, Victoria Fouts. And I said, well, I'm her dad. So why don't you come in? So these two guys come in and they're talking to me and they're asking me questions like, when was the last time you saw Victoria? You know, when was the last time that you talked to her? Do you know where she went? We're, we're kind of, we're, we're asking questions we need to find out. And so they're looking around the house, and I finally tell one officer, and I said, hey, look, you can go down that hall there, turn to the right, that's her bedroom. You can go check it out. She's not here. Well, they keep asking questions like, you know, we're, we're looking for her. The other officer, he comes back, and they're standing around there looking. Finally, the one officer says, uh, can we sit down? I said, sure. So we sat down, and the officer looked at me, and he said, Mr. Fouts, he says, I don't know how to tell you this. He said, but... We found your daughter's body this morning on the side of the road in Beasley, Texas, with a gunshot wound to the head. All that I could do is I just looked at him and I said, excuse me? And so he repeated it. And I just kind of sat there in my mind and I said, Lord God, I said, I really need your help here. I said, Father, I said, I've walked through with a number of my clients whose children have been murdered. And I said, but now it's, it's my turn. I need your help. Show me how to move forward. And so the cop was still talking to me as, as I'm thinking. All I hear is, rrr, 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 rrr. You know, it's kind of like the Snoopy thing, you know. And all of a sudden, I just looked at the officer and I said, hold on a second. I picked up my flip phone. Yes, I was a big flip phone guy. I pick up the flip phone and he says, uh, Mr. Fouts, who are you calling? And I, and I started to tell him, 
I'm going to call my attorney, Bruce, across the street. And before I could get the words out, it was like this little man popped in and he goes, oh, that would be a really bad idea. And so I thought about it and I said, um, I'm going to call my friend Bruce. He lives across the street. So I dial the number and I'm ringing and I'm still thinking, come on, Bruce, answer the phone. I need help here. And the, the phone answers. And I'm thinking, praise God, Bruce is home. And what do I get? Hi, this is Bruce. I can't come to the phone right now, so if you would, please leave your name and your number, and I'll call you back when I get back. So I hung up the phone, and I'm thinking, like, oh, great, this is, this is not working. And so the cop goes, Mr. Fouts, I need to talk to you. And I just went, hold on a second, and I pick up the flip phone, and I start to dial another number. And he goes, well, who are you calling now? And I said, well, I'm calling my buddy Ed the Fed. His eyebrows kind of raised. And I said, no, no, no. I said, he always wanted to be an FBI guy, and I said when he got out of college, his eyesight went bad and he couldn't go in, and so now he's a federal bank examiner. And he goes by Ed the Fed, and he goes, oh, okay. So I call Ed. Ed answers the phone. I tell him what's going on. He lived about 15 minutes away. He was there within five. He gets over there, and I'm thinking the cops are still kind of talking to me, and then they start talking to one another. They're detectives. And so I said, listen, I said, Leah's working. I said, i, I got to get to Leah. I said, I, I got to get these guys out of here. I said, I got to get in the car. I got to drive down I 10. I got to go out to, to Barker Cypress and I got to tell Leah what's going on. And my mind's like going, Yeah, you know, but you're going to be real anxious and, you know, you're driving. And I said, Well, I just don't know what to do. And about that time, two more detectives walked in. I now have four. They've, they've asked Ed to leave. And so they, we kind of go around the corner to my office, and now I've got four detectives. And I'm thinking about Leah, and all of a sudden, Ed, I hear Ed's reminder, we'll go take care of Leah, we'll get the pastor and some friends, we'll pick her up and bring her home. And so now I'm sitting here thinking, well, this is good, i got four detectives, because that certainly took care of me trying to leave here to drive to go see my wife. After they left, we suddenly started having a, Leah came home, she walked into the door, she was crying, she hugged me, and she just looked at me, and she said, Briny, is it true? I said, yes. We hugged, she cried, and then the whole day was, we started getting phone calls, we started having people come by the house. They came by to love on us, they came by to minister to us, and from that day until the following Wednesday, it just seemed like it started at 7.30 in the morning and it went until 10 o'clock at night. We just had, it was just like swinging doors. Somebody was coming in, we'd have 10, 15 people in the house, then we'd have 25, then we'd be down to 10, then we'd be back up to 25. I once told somebody, I said that every time the phone rang and they wanted to talk to Leah, I handed the phone to somebody and I said, take this to Leah. When somebody would come to the door, they'd say, oh, we're so sorry, and we'd hug, and I said, yes, I know, and I'd hug him, and I'd walk him into the living room, and I felt like Ed McMahon, and here's Leah. And they would go in, and they would love on Leah, and they would minister to Leah. That Monday, I had the band from the Daystar Project come over, the band that we had, and I said, listen, I said, we've decided to have Victoria cremated, and we're going to have a celebration of life service on Wednesday, and I said, I'm going to play. I'd like to know if you guys would come along and play with me. And so that Wednesday, we got ready to pack everything up. My wife showed up at the church while it was setting up, and she said, the detective came by, and they arrested the driver and the shooter. So that was two down. And I was like, praise God, that's great. And then Leah looked at me, and she said, I know you're setting up, and that's where your mind's at. I just wanted to come by and tell you. That afternoon, we got ready to play, and my two horn players came up to me, and they said, Brian, you really don't have to do this. You don't really have to go through with this. He said, we'll totally understand if you just want to call everything off. We'll just pipe in some music and let the pastor do his thing. I said, no. I said, I'm going to do this for God. I'm going to do it for my daughter. We had an awesome worship that took place. We told Pastor Jerry Edmondson that we wanted and expected to have a call to altar, a total come to Jesus at the altar. And we didn't want to mess around. 
And so I went and sat down with my wife when the band was through, and when Jerry was finishing up, I went back up to the platform. I sat down at the grand piano and softly started playing. The church held about 1,500 people. We figured there was a pretty close 1,200 people there. After he gave the invitation, there was somewhere between 20 and 30 people that came down front to the altar. And eight people accepted Christ at the altar that day. So out of our daughter's death, there was great glory that came to Jesus Christ. And that's a thing that we kind of wanted to share. You know, Lee and I sat on the porch the night that she, after she had been killed, and we just said, you know, God, we really need your help. We really need your help. We need your peace. And we were reminded in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts, your mind, through Christ Jesus. And within 48 hours, the Lord answered our prayer, and we had a great peace about her passing. Someone once asked Jesse to plant us when his mama died. He said, well, Jesse, now that your mama's died, she's in your past. And Jesse replied, he says, my mama's not in my past. She's in my future. And so when people have asked us about our daughter, we've just said, Victoria's not in our past. She died. She's in the hands and arms of Jesus. And she's in our future. And so one of the things that we've shared with people is... Shortly after that time, Lee and I went through a period of restoration and preparation. We did our counseling. We did our trauma counseling. We started getting prepared for what God had ready for us. In March of 2009, my wife and I were both ordained ministers through the Charles and Francis Hunter Ministries. And when they told us to look under our seats for our, for our certificates, we pulled out our little packets and the date on the certificates was March 14th, our daughter's birthday. And so I want to share from you, from, with you from this is that from that time forward that the Lord has, has given and it gave to Leah and I the opportunity to minister to many families who had lost a child or a loved one to a murderer. And then as time passed, he started having us minister to those who lost a child due to an illness or to drug overdose or to a car accident or to suicide. And our ministry grew and grew until finally the father came on one of our drives and said, I want you to write a book. And we started writing on a book, and it's called From Misery to Ministry, A Walk of Faith. And the reason that we named that was is because there was a pastor by the name of Rod Parsley who once said, he said that out of your greatest trials and tragedies and misery, God will birth your greatest ministry. And you know, there's an old saying in Psalms that it says, you've turned my mourning into dancing and you've loosened my sackcloth and girded me up with gladness. But I like the way that the message reads. It says, you did it! You changed wild lament into whirling dance, and you ripped off my black mourning band, and you decked me with wild flowers. I'm about to burst into song, and I can't keep quiet about you, God. My God, I can't thank you enough. And so I want to share with you this. Our ministry was started with the vision to bring a message of hope and healing and encouragement. In Hebrew, that word, in, that word in encouragement is hazak, and it is the only Hebrew word for hazak. And that was the reason that we named our ministry Hazak Ministries. And the strength word of hazak in itself, and the root word, is actually the word for strength. And how do we know that it's strength? Because God told Joshua, not once, not twice, but three times. He told him to be strong. He told him to be courageous. And how do we know that? I want to share with you right now that there are many of you here are hurting. 
Maybe you've lost. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you're looking for a job. Maybe you're trying to sell a house. Maybe you're trying to look for another house. Maybe you're trying to look for a place to live. Possibly maybe you're struggling with some kind of illness, a mental illness. Maybe you're struggling with some kind of disease that some doctors placed on you and said there's no hope unless we just burn you with some kind of a therapy. And I'm here to tell you that God tells you that he's the healer. Yeshua HaMashiach, he is the great physician. He is the great healer. And so I want to let you know that when you're tired and you feel broken down and that you're fatigued, that take heart to the word of the fight for the battle for you and to remember this because you have to get up on two hands and two legs and you've got to fight the battle. And the Lord told Joshua this in one six. He said, Joshua, be strong and courageous. That word, hazak. He then again told him again in verse 7. He said, Joshua, be strong and be very courageous. And then for a third time he comes back and he says, Joshua, have I not commanded you to be strong and to be courageous? And today I share that word with you all that whatever you're suffering from, the Lord Jesus Christ can bring about forgiveness. He can bring about redemption. He can come about and do total restoration for you. And while you're trying to fight, you get up and put one foot in front of the other each day. And when you get up, you give praise to God for another day to be on the top side of the grass. You ask him, Father, help me. Help me to be positive. Help me to be open and willing and obedient to do what you've called me to do. And if you don't know what you've been called to do, ask God. Ask him for what your purpose is, and he will tell you. And while you're going through each day and you're trying to put one foot in front of the other and you're feeling a time of struggling, remember these words. Be strong and courageous. You take another step. Be strong and be very courageous. And then you take another strong step and you stand upright with your back straight and your head held up high. And then you be strong because the Lord says, Have I not commanded you to be strong and to be courageous? Today I gave you an opportunity a little bit about who I am and what our ministry does. And I pray for you today that may the Lord give you peace, may he light your way, and that he may guide your steps. And so with everything that has happened, not only in my life, but I'm sure that has happened in your life or that is going on in your life, remember, you will always need one more. And that, my friend, is Jesus Christ. I thank you for the opportunity to come here today and the opportunity to walk in your garden.
God of miracles. You're the God of miracles. God of miracles. 